0: The night before, we'd heard crying coming from the tent next to us. And our guide went over, spoke with theirs. They said, oh, she's got altitude sickness. She's going to go down in the morning. Well, she did. She went down in a body bag.
1: I've got someone here I've been chasing for just a little bit because this is an amazing woman. I just am excited to talk to her today. She's done so much. One of the humblest people I know. You know, I spent my life chasing Uh, an Olympic gold medal, or an Olympic medal, or just getting on the Olympic team, and I didn't make it. I've worked hard, and I've, you know, accumulated a whole lot of other stuff, but, you know, I didn't get there. This is a lady who said to me when I reached out to her for this interview, oh, you know, gee, uh, I don't think I'm quite as accomplished as you, but, and she meant it, and she uh, said it with humility and sweetness. Now, this is a lady who's climbed the seven summits, all seven of the summits and uh, the biggest, highest mountains uh, that get into this. Well, I'll let her describe what they are in just a minute. But before I get a little bit into her background, let me just give a very warm welcome and hello to Lori Schneider. Hi, Lori. How are you?
0: I'm great, Craig. I am just so thrilled to be speaking with you today and honored. and. Uh, I'm humbled to be in your presence because like I mentioned to you before, you've accomplished so many things and you know, I'm, I'm kind of a wannabe athlete that had a big goal in life and Set my mind to it, but uh, you've been working at it a long, hard time. So thank you for inviting me today.
1: Yeah, you see what I mean. See what I mean. What do you hear? What do you hear? This look I had no hindrances along the way to what I was trying to achieve. And by the way, I only mentioned uh, what I was trying to achieve to create this this wild juxtaposition between her amazing accomplishments and the challenges that she was up against in order to achieve them, relative to my own, which were you know, just go out and do it. I had, I had nothing in the way and, uh, and, and did not make it. And she had everything in the way and did it seven times. So, um, all right, Laura, let's just talk a little bit about your background before we get into the seven summits and the challenges you faced, um, in achieving that, because the story is amazing. Um, you developed, as you say, a bad case of, of wanderlust when you were 15 years old and you traveled to all corners of the earth in search of unique cultures, people, and challenging experiences. What what lit that fire?
0: You know, when I was a young girl, my parents sent me to a summer camp in northern Wisconsin, and I just got the bug to get out in nature and get out and experience people and and really immerse myself in a world of exploring, and it was a canoeing camp, and and I met a lot of people that were pretty adventurous, and so I set this goal for myself to every year, I was going to go somewhere, and when I was 15, this summer camp invited some of the people on the trip to go on a trip to Europe for six weeks, and I remember asking my parents if I could go. It was $1,500, and they said, well, if you can save the money, you can go, and so I got a job at a restaurant, and I saved the money, and I spent uh, the summer between my junior and senior year of high school in Europe, and that started me on a path of just loving to travel, loving to experience new people and places, and it, it changed my life.
1: You woke up one day with a problem. What was that problem?
0: Oh, it was still a day I'll never forget. I swung my legs out of bed, getting ready to get on my treadmill to exercise for the morning, and I was numb on the entire right side of my body from head to toe. And I and, uh, called the doctor, and they thought maybe I'd had a stroke. And they thought brain cancer, they started running tests for the next several weeks and in months really, but they found out I had multiple sclerosis and it it scared me to death because I thought my physical life was over. You know, every single case is different. And I started out with every symptom imaginable. I had the numbness and tingling on half of my body. That, you know, they thought it was a stroke, and obviously it wasn't. I had a lot of vision loss and blurriness. I had real balance issues. I had a lot of tightness in my muscles and my chest. I was having legs, muscle spasms. Just everything kind of went haywire at the same time, and for me, it lasted for a couple of years, a lot of those symptoms. And then eventually they started to go away as I got stronger physically and mentally. My body seemed to kind of fall into a stride that worked for me. A lot of people with MS never get past those initial symptoms and everyone, it's, it's different. And maybe I'm just lucky, or maybe the exercise agreed with me and helped get me stronger inside and out. But uh, it's a really debilitating disease for many, many people. And I'm just lucky that right now, I, I don't have any symptoms left, really.
1: Well, we're all happy to hear that, that's for sure. But as a result of this, you know, when it wore off, you decided to accelerate your love of travel and mountains and set out to climb the highest peaks on each continent. Why that?
0: Well, you know, I was originally told that I would probably be in a wheelchair within a year's time, and I'd been a teacher for 20 years, and and it rocked my world so terribly that I, I ran away from my life for a while, and, and uh, I'd been in a... a 20 year marriage and I had a 20 year teaching career and I had a you know a a home and a community that I loved and enjoyed and fear ruled my life for a while and I thought I have to do every physical thing that I can while my legs are still working and I I went to the mountains because I could really hide in the mountains I thought nobody knows that I have MS and I had to get my courage and strength and my will to live again. And so I started climbing, and one turned into another and another. And 10 years after I was diagnosed, I stood on the summit of Mount Everest.
1: Yeah, not only Everest, but six other huge mountains, which we're going to get into in detail here. But just want to touch on this just a little bit further. A lot of people go running. They do long-distance running, ultra marathons, biking long-distance, swimming. These are all sports that you can really get lost in your mind why wasn't it one of those and was there some earlier calling that pulled you to the mountains
0: you know i i had been a runner for several years and i had done a couple of marathons and different things but really climbing was my dad's idea i remember being in high school and my dad would run every day. Get up at four thirty in the morning. Still does. And uh, he would run every day. And he said, "Someday I want to go to Africa and climb Mount Kilimanjaro." And you know, he'd been pretty athletic. And and I, I said, "Well, someday I'll go with you." And and uh I remember twenty years later dad saying you know he was still interested in going to Africa and I had taken a couple years leave of absence from my teaching career and was doing an around the world backpacking trip and ended up meeting my dad in Africa and we climbed Kilimanjaro and reached the summit on his 61st birthday so he was the start of it and then it went by the wayside for a number of years until you know I ended up waking up that morning six or seven years later with the numbness from MS.
1: Okay. All right. Now we understand the impetus. Your father pushed you.
0: (laughs) (laughs) But he's he's not a climber either. You know, he was like me. He had a big dream. And sometimes dreams are enough of a push to bring the crazy out in all of us.
1: For those people who don't know what the seven summits are, and please correct me if I got any of these wrong, Kilimanjaro, Mount Elbrus, McKinley which is now Denali, Aconcagua. Yes. All right. And and this one I don't know either. Uh, Vincent Mastiff?
0: Yeah, the Vinson Massif in Antarctica.
1: Uh, Mount?
0: Kosciuszko. There we go. That's one in Australia. I knew you were going to get stuck on that.
1: <laughs> all right.
0: <laughs> Everyone does. Mount Cozy. people call it.
1: There's nothing cozy about it, I'm sure. And uh, the last one that, of course, we all know, the infamous or – yeah. Infamous, I think is right, Mount Everest. Yes. I want to talk a second here about your organization, Empowerment Through Adventure. Tell us about it.
0: I developed Empowerment Through Adventure back when I decided to climb Everest because I wanted to do something important with my climbing. I wanted to raise awareness of multiple sclerosis and the fact that people, even when diagnosed with a disabling disease like MS, they can still have dreams and ambitions. So when I went to Everest, I wanted to take the hopes and dreams of so many of us who have been diagnosed and, and are sometimes living in fear and, and sometimes just don't have the physical strength left to accomplish goals. I wanted to take them with me on this. So I organized Empowerment Through Adventure and you know, now I bring people along with varying abilities to do other activities. You know, some mountain climbing things. Uh, We're taking a group helicopter hiking in the Bugaboo Mountains next July. So it's really just to help raise awareness, but also get people involved on different levels.
1: Let's start with these seven summits. Let's begin with Kilimanjaro, the the highest freestanding mountain in the world, at a, at about twenty thousand feet. Correct?
0: Yes, nineteen three forty. And I remember the first time I climbed it with my father. We barely made it to the top. We said if it was nineteen three forty one, we would not have made it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> what was the, what was tough about Kilimanjaro?
0: It's a very tough mountain. It's I think it's the most underestimated of the seven summits because. You climb it quickly. And most climbing companies want to get you up and down in five days. When I went the first time, we took six. When I brought a group back there in 2011, we did it in seven days to give us an extra acclimatization day. But that mountain is climbed quickly, so people just, their body does not get in a really good rhythm like it does climbing a mountain like Everest where you're there two months. And it's just a difficult schlag <laughs> where your body has not had a chance to really recondition and reset itself to the high altitude. And I'm not sure you could stay up there long enough to acclimatize, you know, very easily because of the way that that mountain is set up. You've got to do it quickly at, there are a lot of people on it. It's a fast up and down so that the camps have room for other climbers coming up. So they, they do try to rush you up and down. But it's a tough
1: mountain. There are multiple routes going up uh, this mountain as well. Do you think that they all provide or present the same difficulty in terms of acclimatization?
0: I think they do for the most part. It depends on, you know, the company you go with or if you're going independently, you know, some routes are more commercialized and they have a little bit more of an infrastructure set up. But, you know, unless you spend a couple of extra days at the higher camps, your body doesn't get used to it very easily. So it's just a tough one. You go through a lot of ecosystems on the way. So you're going, you know, starting out monkey swinging in the trees and, and you know, the the heat of you know being in Africa you get up into the ice and snow and and frigid temps on top
1: What about Mount uh, Elbrus
0: Oh Mount Elbrus was very interesting climb now that is considered the highest peak in Europe it's on the border of Russia and Europe so you actually fly to Russia and we started our climb from there but uh, it's an interesting mountain because it has a a little uh, Quonset hut base camp set up and I remember when we arrived there it looked like there were soup cans laying on the hillside and you would sleep in those at night as you were acclimatizing and then each day you'd walk a little ways up the mountain and then back down to the soup cans at night and the next day you'd go a little farther and back down And then after a couple of days of doing that and really getting the skills for crevasse crossing and, and, you know, walking with crampons and that kind of thing, then they would take you up to the highest point that you'd hiked before, and you'd start from there. So very different kind of, of climbing and not very technical, although you did use crampons and ice axe,
1: so Elbrus is at about 18,500 feet, the same, you know, a little less, but, you know, roughly the same as Kilimanjaro. Which did you find the more difficult of the two?
0: I found Kilimanjaro more difficult just because you're going through so many different ecosystems and the temperature changes where on um, Elbrus, you started out really in the snow country and went on from there. Although I do remember our summit night on Elbrus, and we're roped together for safety on that mountain. And I remember it being very windy and, and the hood of my, my jacket kept blowing open and, and I kept, you know, trying to pull everything in and and keep my body warm. And it, it was really the first experience that I'd had of really frigid weather, when I was climbing, you know, the entire time. So a little different that way, but I I still think Kilimanjaro was more difficult just because the acclimatization factor.
1: You know, you make a good point here. You know, when I do my camping or hiking, I'm basically preparing for a single climate. How do you pack for a place like Kilimanjaro where you do go through four distinctly different climates?
0: It's all about layering. (laughs) Even in Antarctica, it's all about layering because you'll have times when there's, you know, sunshine, warmer temps, and it can change in a heartbeat. And really it's about getting the lightest high-tech gear that you can find because you don't want to have to carry the weight in your pack. You know, for the most part, we hiked in pants during the day and then you just added layers over that you know rain layers or warmth layers that kind of thing and we started right from the bottom in hiking boots because the terrain is so uneven and there's there's a lot of mud there are a lot of roots a lot of rocks and as you get up higher a lot of scree and unstable footing right from the start so most people where hiking boots start to finish. On that mountain, you didn't need a real mountaineering boot for warmth. Your hiking boots were good enough. So there wasn't a big foot change, although when you get to camp at the end of the day, you definitely wanted to layer up with clothing and layer down with shoes.
1: <laughs> for anyone who has an experience walking on Scree, the earth is moving underneath you. These are rocks. They're up high. They're above the tree line. And uh, if you're not in shape and you're on a decent elevation, it's tiring both on your quads, on your mind, and on your lungs. Wouldn't you agree?
0: Yes, exactly. It really is difficult. And I think the the mountain that I experienced the most scree was Aconcagua. And there was so much sliding backwards and you never felt you were getting ahead. So, Yeah, scree is is very difficult, And, and going back down the scree, I find really challenging because of the twisting of your knees, coming down Kilimanjaro. Some people could really get in the rhythm of running and sliding. I did not have that confidence. By the time you get down, there are a lot of, uh, a lot of
1: really swollen joints. <laughs> Do you think that the reason some of the people take Kilimanjaro for granted is uh, also because they think of it as the, quote-unquote, easiest of the seven summits? It's only 20,000 feet, which is significant because I find myself at about thirteen or 14,000 feet feeling the effects of altitude and getting slurred speech right at about that altitude. Even at 10,000 feet, you can really begin to feel the effects and it can really make you second guess whether or not you've really trained up for a climb or not, even if you've done all the work. Have you ever experienced that feeling of knowing you've done mm-hmm. all the work it took to get where you need to go? You show up and right away, as the minute you get into altitude, you feel like you're out of shape and maybe you did something wrong?
0: Yes, exactly. That magic number of 10,000 feet can really hit people. Even living in Colorado for 20 years in the mountains, people come to you know go on a ski vacation. They think, hey, I'm in great shape. They get off the gondola at 12, 13,000 feet, and they can't believe how awful they feel. And it was like that on, on Kilimanjaro. It's people think it's going to be easy because it's non-technical, but Elevation is the real equalizer, and it absolutely can throw you for a loop. And sometimes you you walk through it, you know, that 10,000, 11,000 points of your body acclimatization passes, and then you start to feel good again, and then you get up to around 14, start to feel crummy again, and then you get a little better, and it's really a, a cyclical thing where you just have to, Keep moving forward, but a little at a time.
1: Yeah, and there are two major ailments you can get, pulmonary and uh, cerebral edema, and that will derail your mountain climbing efforts right away. It's really critical to be able to spot these and know to go to lower altitude. Have you ever been in a scene where you or someone around you have experienced this?
0: All the time. <laughs> yeah, On, on uh, Aconcagua in South America, my father went with me on that climb, And we got to, oh, I think around 17,000 feet. And I was ahead of him and I heard my dad calling and he said, you know, Lori, I need to stop. And I turned around and He looked exhausted, and he said, this is my summit. I've got to go back. He was experiencing altitude sickness, coughing, a lot of fluid buildup in the lungs. And the guide looked at him and said, we've got to get you down. And we knew it was serious because the night before, we'd heard crying coming from the tent next to us. There was a a climbing team from Mexico that were there with their guide. The woman was crying, and our guide went over and spoke with theirs and they said, oh, she's got altitude sickness. She's going to go down in the morning. Well, she did. She went down in a body bag because she died during the night. It can hit you so quickly. You've got to turn around. So sometimes you don't even notice the symptoms. You get swollen face, swollen hands, and other people can see it in you and you don't even realize you're retaining a lot of fluid. That's part of the reason I've always gone with a really good climbing company because you need someone to tell you (laughs) when your time is done and it's time to turn around.
1: Talk to us about the importance of self-awareness. You mentioned that sometimes you don't even know these symptoms are happening to yourself. So the issue of working with a team so that you got each other's back, turning someone around that may not do it themselves. And what do you do when you're solo climbing to make sure that you're attuned to this problem that you might not see otherwise?
0: There are only a few times when I've done any kind of hiking totally by myself, and I always have a plan ahead of time, and I tell somebody about the plan. And if you don't hear from me by a certain time, this is where I was headed, this is where I should be. You know, you really have to have that organized. And now with GPS systems, it's a lot more technologically advanced than the times that I hiked alone. But generally, you go with a team and you have to rely on the experience and the knowledge of others. Yes, you have your own plan, but sometimes your brain is not working (laughs) properly I remember on Everest, I thought every day our guides would have a little powwow with each person individually and say, you're doing all right, or you're done. And every day after I'd speak with the guides, I'd go, yes, yes, I'm still in. You know, I was so excited that they thought I was doing all right and holding my own because, you know, I knew that in my heart, it would be almost impossible To turn around because when I get something in my mind, I don't give up very easily. I just don't because I know it's hard and I know it's going to be grueling and excruciating and I know I'm not going to feel good. That's part of it. But I also know that I don't want to die on a mountain. That's not my goal. I, you know, getting up is optional. Getting down is mandatory you know, I want to be able to turn around and come back safely. And and that's why you go with a great team and you know to look for things in each other, look for fatigue, look for the cognitive things that are starting not to work very well in each other and, and see if they're processing details. But you really sometimes have to let go of control and especially in an athlete that's so hard to do because it's so against our nature determination clouds everything you know when you're running a marathon it it clouds it of course it hurts you know (laughs) i mean it, it just does by the end you're like whoa you know, can I go on, but you get it in your mind that this is your goal and you're going to keep going until you finish it so the
1: solo climber just simply has to go into it, knowing that they have to have a, a higher level of self awareness throughout the whole thing and do self checks more often than they would have to do if they went with a group is really um, well there are other major differences between group and solo climbing, but as far as uh cerebral and pulmonary go that that would be one of the major differences just a much higher level of awareness and check factoring.
0: Yeah, definitely. The risk is huge.
1: <laughs> Tell us about Mount McKinley. I, I love Alaska and it's one of my favorite places. No, I've never been. I just look at it on the map and it's a, it's a beautiful place, seeing all the documentaries. Beautiful, beautiful national park there. Tell us all about Mount McKinley, which by the way is at 20,300 feet. That's the biggest of the three we've chatted about so far.
0: Yeah. And because of the distance from the equator, It seems more like around 23,000 feet on your body. The farther you are from the equator, the greater the pressure on your body, and mountain peaks can seem a lot more difficult the further they are. So Mount McKinley or Denali, the climbers all call it Denali, to me that was my proving ground. I was told that if I ever had any notion of considering the Vinson Massif or Antarctica, I needed to prove myself on Denali, prove to myself that I could do it on Denali. And so I joined a team. I was the only woman, which is fairly typical when you get up into more advanced climbing situations. Uh it was a a team of 10 men and a couple of guides. And I remember when when I got there, you know, they they connect you with the team months and months in advance. You have to apply a year in advance and they check your resumes and you have to prove that you've, you know, climbed, you know, peaks that have really challenged you. But I remember that the day I met the team in Alaska and you walk in and I, can just see it in their faces. They're, you know, younger, stronger men and, and they look and they see this 50 year old woman walking in and, you know, you, you just knew they were thinking, oh man, it's a chick and she's old too, you know. <laughs> and, uh, I remember as we're introducing ourselves, you know, I said, I've trained really hard for this climb. I'm going to do the best that I can. I won't ask you to do anything for me, but I'm happy to do anything that I can to help. And after that first day, when I'm dragging a 60-pound sled behind me and carrying 60 more pounds on my back, and they're carrying the exact same weight, and they look at me and <laughs> and think, well, you know, she's, she's in. She's in because uh, we're all doing the same thing, and it doesn't matter. You know, you're all in it together. And you all are there to help one another, but you all have to carry your own weight. I mean, it's nobody else's fault that I'm, you know, weighing 120 pounds and they're weighing close to 200. And I'm carrying and dragging the equivalent of my body weight. And the equivalent, you know, comparison for them is not nearly as much. But that's not their problem. And it's... You know, it's something that I knew when I signed up for it and I had to train hard and mentally I was very, very strong and I was ready to go. And I, I love that mountain. You climb for a month. I loved it. It's, it's beautiful and it's absolutely challenging. You are roped up every second until you're in your tent or close to your tent at night, and uh, it's extremely cold. Just challenges you on every every level.
1: Just real quick, we know that uh, Kilimanjaro is at twenty, roughly twenty thousand feet. Takes five days. Elbrus took how long?
0: It was about a two week
1: full time on the mountain.
0: You know, the time on the mountain a little less. It's just the logistics of getting there are more difficult traveling through Russia and the mountain itself, it was a l- little bit less than two weeks, I believe, to climb it. And and most of that, it's just
1: a climatization time. It's a lot of time to spend on a mountain. What's it like to be roped up, you know, on a mountain in Alaska for a month?
0: Okay, you want to know what it's like yes, to be roped yes, up? Yes, yes, pray tell. <laughs> I'll tell you. <laughs> the first day, I know we're going to be roped up. You know, we've uh, got 10 people Couple of guides, so a dozen of us were on, you know, three different ropes. Sometimes four, depending on on how far apart we needed to be spread. Well, you're roped up the entire time until you set up camp. So that means when you're taking a break to eat, drink, or pee, you're still roped up. So okay, I'm hooked up to all of these teams. We pull up next to each other, rope team. Four in a row, three in a row, just a few feet from each other. And they said, you have five minutes because they don't want you to start to chill, to cool down and chill. So you get five minutes to eat, drink and pee. So I remember the first day I'm thinking, well, I'll just unclip from the line and stand at the back of the line so that I can, you know, pee and, and you have your pee funnel. It's it's private enough, but still you're in front of a lot of people. And I unclipped from the rope and my guide looked at me and he said, what are you doing? And I said, I'm just going to pee. He said, you learn how to do it right now in front of everybody because you never, never, never unclipped from the rope. <laughs> and uh I remember they were such nice guys and they all kind of turned their heads, gave me privacy. I, I just, I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. And, uh, I remember that day after holding my, my pee for hours and hours, we got to camp and the first team had already dug a little hole down in the snow and put the little pee and poo can down in the hole. And, uh, Every day, it was always there, so that I could be the first one to go pee <laughs> because I was usually holding it most of the day. But so it's interesting being roped to a team, and, and of course you get used to it. But for one month, you're you're each other's lifeline.
1: You don't just show up and hike these things. You have to have permits.
0: Yes, and on Denali, you had to apply to the the Park Service. A year in advance pretty much and they went over your resume and they gave you a thumbs up or a thumbs down and, and it's too many people die. You know, they just will not allow that. And, and the good climbing companies require that on any of the big mountains. You have to prove that you have done the training and you have the experience and especially when you're getting you know, to a mountain-like Everest or the Vincent Massif, you've got to prove that you've, you're taking this very seriously because they don't want a death toll on their heads either. And uh, Yeah, it's it's definitely definitely something where you develop your resume and you have to have proof.
1: All right, take us over to Aconcagua.
0: It's in South America on the border of Chile and Argentina. And I remember... After Kilimanjaro, my father and I, you know, feeling like we'd barely made it. Well, then half a dozen years later, he says, let's do another one. And it has to be harder. (laughs) And you know how you selectively forget that you almost didn't make it the first time?
1: Absolutely. Totally get it.
0: But the strange part of that was you train for a year in advance. Generally, you send in your money, train for a year and you go. Well, we had sent in our money on January 1st and it was a uh, 1999 and four days later was the day that I woke up numb from MS. And I didn't want to tell my dad, I didn't want to tell anybody because I was afraid that they would tell me that I couldn't do this climb. And so for six months, I kept it from everyone and continued my training and and as best I could, you know, getting on a treadmill and and I remember being in the hospital when they were trying to determine what was wrong with me and a doctor walked in it was about 5 in the morning and I was doing sit-ups in the hospital bed and he said, "What are you doing?" <laughs> and I said, "500 sit-ups." And he said, "Why?" And I said, because I'm training to climb a really big mountain in South America, and I need to keep in shape. And this was when they're thinking I possibly had brain cancer because they had misdiagnosed or misread my, my first test that actually proved I had MS, but they were testing me for other things. So here, this guy thinks I'm dying, and I'm sitting doing sit-ups in the hospital bed and I swear he thinks I totally lost my mind, but, uh, so I continued to train throughout that whole time getting ready for Aconcagua. And I remember six months after my dad and I had sent in our money, I finally got up the courage to tell my parents that I'd been diagnosed and and I said, I'm going no matter what. I have to prove to myself that I have some control over my physical body. And and uh I kept training. And in December, we flew to South America, and I stood on top of that peak on the millennium, New Year's Eve, 99, 2000. And, and I still remember thinking, you know, girl, if you are strong enough to stand on top of this mountain, you're strong enough to stop hiding the fact that you've been diagnosed with MS and it really was a changing time in my life of accepting the fact that you know my body wasn't perfect it was not that it not that it ever was or I ever thought it was but but just not to hide the fact that I'd been diagnosed with MS anymore and and to just allow myself to be in that space mentally and physically and see what life had to
1: offer. You had really two huge back-to-back moments where climbing McKinley was a this-is-what-proves-me episode. And then immediately following that, Aconcagua. Did I pronounce that right?
0: Aconcagua, yes.
1: Is a moment for you to have to prove yourself on a completely different basis in your own mind.
0: Yeah, it was. And I think when I climbed Aconcagua and realized I did have some control over the outcome of my health by just being persistent at not giving up. I didn't know what my body was going to do in the future, but I knew what it could do right at that moment. And I needed to give myself permission to just start trying. So a couple years later, when I wanted to see what I was made of and wanted to go to Denali, I thought, all I need to do is give myself permission to try. I don't have to be the best at what I try. I just have to give it my best effort. And that's a lesson I've learned through life. You know, I'm not going to be the best at anything. You know, I'm an okay mountain climber. I'm really persistent. I train hard. I don't give up. So that makes me successful. But am I a good mountain climber? Well, good enough to get the job done. But I'm not a professional at it. You know, I'm not a professional athlete. I'm just a person who sets a goal and doesn't give up. And I, I think we all need to remind ourselves that it's okay just to try and to give yourself permission to get out there and do things.
1: You're such a humble person. The fact of the matter is you are an expert. You can't just go out there and do these things. You you have to understand your environment, how to pack. You have to understand so much about what it takes And it's not how fast you get to the top. It's never about how fast you get to the top. It's simply achieving it.
0: Again, it's that determination. And that's what gets us to the top in life. (laughs) That's what absolutely gives us a competitive edge. On all the climbs I've done, I always participate. I I don't even want to say I compete because it's not a competition sport. It's a participation sport. But I always participate with people who are generally stronger because they're younger, more fit, more of a natural athlete. But it's that determination, the desire to succeed and not to quit, that makes you put in the long hours. I mean, for Everest, I trained for a year, four hours a day. For me, that was a lot. And for a year I cut out, you know, no caffeine, no sugar, no alcohol, drank plenty of fluids. I absolutely got my body in the best shape that I could because I knew that was going to be the only edge that I could give myself, getting to the best Lori Schneider spot that I could be and then let go of the outcome, but Give it your all. You know, I trained here in Wisconsin for a climb of Everest. There were no hills, there were no crevasses, so I would put ladders up trees. I would have ladders roped together up very tall trees and I'd climb them in my crampons. Or I'd put hay bales down and ladders across and, you know, simulating the crevasse crossings and I'd go to our local ski area and I'd go up and down with my ice axe and crampons in the winter and practice the self-arrest and falling face first and head first and, you know, feet first and all of the different combinations that could happen on the mountain and, and just do the best I could with what I had because, you know, I took out a loan to climb Everest. I didn't have the money to do it. I sold my house when I left Colorado and I had no financial means to do these climbs. I would just save when and where I could. And when I got you know ready to do Everest, I went to the bank and took out a loan.
1: That's commitment.
0: Where I live in a small town in Northern Wisconsin on the South shore of Lake Superior. It wasn't unusual to see me walking through town with a 50 pound pack on my back. I, carried it wherever I went I thought every day has to be a training day you know and wearing a pack was easy I could wear it in the house I would put a 50 pound bag of dog food in my pack and my little dog Charlie who (laughs) we had to put down a week ago but uh, he used to go to the ski hill with me when I would train and he'd love the sound that rustling noise that the dog food in my pack would make and we'd go up and down those slopes over and over and over. But uh, but yeah, any moment could be a training moment.
1: What's it like on Aconcagua?
0: You know, Aconcagua is, is a very desolate place. Very little vegetation at all. A lot of rocks. I love rocks, so I enjoyed it. But you would walk through riverbeds for hours and hours and hours on end. And then you'd cross streams, and we had mules that would help with a lot of the gear. So on that mountain, you generally would carry around, oh, 35 or 40 pounds in your pack only, and the rest went on mules until you got to a base camp area. But uh, it's just long, dusty trails, and we had to filter our water, to drink every day, and the streams were filled with silt. So it, we spent a lot of time just filtering water. But but that again, it's it's a month long climb, and it's just
1: long, dusty, <laughs> you know, difficult days as you got up higher. We're talking about filtering water. You can't go out on any of these major climbs without the appropriate water filtration system.
0: You know, on a lot of mountains, like on Denali, you melted snow. You know, that was just part of it. And the Vinson Massif in Antarctica, of course, you just melted snow. But other areas where, you know, you start out in very, very dry, arid climate, there. You rely on water sources that you find on Kilimanjaro, the same thing you you got beyond water sources often and the porters would carry water you know from different areas, but it had to be boiled or filtered. A lot of times we just brought tablets along in Russia.
1: We've had to filter or treat all of our water. Hey, let's jump on over to uh, Vincent Massif. I had finished. Five of the
0: summits and I I thought, I need to finish these last couple all in succession to get them out of the way. And so I decided to kind of piggyback the Vincent Massif and Everest together because the training is so difficult for both mountains that it just made sense to do them back to back. The Vincent Massif, it's the most amazing experience. I had done a lot of traveling back when I took a two-year leave of absence and did a backpacking trip around the world back in the 90s. But I'd gone to every continent but Antarctica. And so it had always been a dream of mine to go to Antarctica. And when this climb became a reality, it was – Gosh, just the most amazing experience. I remember we started from the southern tip of South America. We got in a Russian cargo plane with, oh, maybe two dozen other people who were either going to climb the Vincent Massif or some were going to the South Pole. They were going to ski the South Pole. Some were researchers who were going down to work at one of the the research stations. But So we get in this Russian cargo plane, and it took days before the weather was calm enough to even be able to fly because you couldn't have sustained winds of over, I think, 30 or 40 miles an hour on the landing in antarctica because you land on a, a seven mile long ice runway and you slide so there's no brake system so it has to be very calm weather
1: this sounds like sledding or tobogganing
0: oh my gosh it was <laughs> <laughs> so we get on this russian cargo plane i use that uh, word uh very loosely. It did not look like an airplane that flown in before. There were seats, but nothing like most airplanes. I do remember the Russian, kind of the stewards of the plane, came around with a loaf of bread and put a couple of slices of ham on it, passed you the mustard, and you put a little mustard on your sandwich, and (laughs) everyone sitting on the plane were eating our little sandwiches. And then it's time for the plane to land. And we hit the ice and literally we slide for seven miles. Plane turns around and then drives back the seven miles to where the base camp area was. And we got off and it was, I think about three in the morning and total sunlight, you know, their summer, which is our winter. So 24 hours of, of sunlight, but it was about thirty below zero and I thought, Dorothy, we're not in Kansas anymore. It was just frigid and you know, they shuffled us to an area where that very first night they actually had uh Quonset huts set up that we were allowed to sleep in so we wouldn't have to put up our tents in the middle of the night. That was the start of it. Oh my goodness, just bone chilling.
1: What's it like to be in nonstop light, 30 degrees below zero and in Quonset huts and describe a Quonset hut?
0: Well, these little metal, you know, like half a soup can (laughs) set down on the ground and freezing cold inside. There was a little bit of a a potbelly stove that helped heat it up somewhat. But uh, really the only place that you could go to totally get out of the wind and weather. There was a, a little toilet building set up outside that was wooden on the bottom and canvas over the top. And I remember you'd you'd go and sometimes the, the wind would be 40, 50, 60 mile an hour winds. And I remember pulling open the door to the, the little outhouse and the door flying open and and you'd have to pull so hard to pull it shut and there would always be several people standing inside just <laughs> trying to get out of the out of the wind because even in our in our nightly hut it was pretty pretty chilly at night Ooh, it was a tough one <laughs> Do you ever
1: get used to 24-hour daylight
0: Oh uh, yes cuz you're so exhausted you could sleep through anything really you know the light doesn't matter so much but In Antarctica, our team started out, we had four people, two quit almost immediately. So it was just myself and the guide for following several weeks. But our tent, when we would put that up at the end of the day, we would snap in a lining that would make the tent about 15 degrees warmer inside. So instead of being 60 below inside your tent, it would be 45 below then you'd get in your sleeping bag and uh by the time you went to bed you were pulling your sleeping bag over your head anyway and your face masks and your your hats so it, the darkness was there just given the nature of you were trying to stay warm <laughs> so it, it it wasn't too terrible to get used to the the 24 hours daylight and when you were walking it helped because you could see where you were going And it didn't need to use headlamps like on Everest or, you know, Denali and some of those other places.
1: This mountain's at 16,000 feet, and um, don't be fooled by the so-called lower altitude here. This is an enormously difficult climb.
0: Yeah, because of the distance from the equator, again, it seemed like it was about 3,000 feet higher as far as the pressure on your body.
1: What's it like on Vincent compared to the other ones?
0: The effort was enormous because you're dragging sleds again, like we did on Denali. Sleds make it possible to take things in one carry as opposed to two. So you're dragging a lot of gear. Sometimes you had to drag the gear, dump it, and go back and take another load, you know, so it might take you two trips in a day to get to one camp. But then because of the incredible wind on that mountain, much like it was on Denali, we had to kind of build an igloo around our tents. So we would use saws to cut ice chunks about one foot by one foot. And it took hours and hours. And you would cut these ice chunks, and then you would stack walls around the tent to keep the wind from blowing it over and when you normally stake a tent you know you pound your stakes into the ground and that should hold it but when you're in an icy windy environment a lot of times you had to dig a trough in front of your tent tie the ropes from your tent the guide wires around your ice axe and then bury the ice axe into the snow and then cover it with snow so that you had a lot of reinforcement for those terrible winds and it's it's just such a
1: hostile environment you gotta have belief then you have to persevere through training and the actual event, but you've got to persevere minute after minute after minute in those kinds of environments that you just described. What keeps you there? I know that your motivation, you know, was based around your physical limitation and overcoming that, which you've done in stellar fashion and inspiring fashion, but what's keeping you there in these moments? What, what's your other, why?
0: On the Vincent Massif, everything was in question and the why came in question and it was moment to moment because it's so grueling and so difficult because of the cold and the frostbite and everything is breaking and breaking down. The why does come into play. And, and unfortunately I recall on that mountain for the first and only time, I wondered if I was making a huge mistake. And the reason all of this happened, I was on a team with two other clients and a guide, a guide which I'd climbed with before on several occasions and it was his idea to to do the Antarctic climb. But the other two clients quit one the first day in and the next person the second day in because it it is very cold and it is very difficult and and they were out of their comfort zone. And everybody's comfort zone is different, and I totally get that. But they were out of their comfort zone, and they made a decision that they were done. I had trained, again, for a year for this. That climb was $40,000. It was a huge, huge investment for me and a bank loan. And I, I couldn't quit. It was a matter of... I can't give up because in a few months I'm going to be doing Everest. And if I fail on this mountain, what am I even doing attempting Everest? And I, I had to get beyond my, uh, it's hard to explain. It's not my fear of being there, but it was all encompassing in in a very different way for me. The guide that I had gone with was convinced after the other two climbers had quit that I would probably quit as well. And when I didn't want to quit, it became difficult for just a two-person team on that mountain to carry all the gear and everything that we needed We ended up joining forces with another team that was there. And the first summit attempt, it was, you know, 60-mile-an-hour winds, 60 below zero. We all had to turn around and go back to high camp. You know, the next day when we tried, it was only 45 below, and the winds had died down, and and we did all right. But it was just a time I questioned whether I was making – the right choice by still being there and it it was a tough call.
1: You faced the fullness of who you are and what you're made of. It sounds like it presented you to yourself in full um, in that moment where you were questioning whether or not you could do this. You're really at your mental and emotional wit's end and in that moment you had to face off completely with who you are and the stuff you're made of, especially with Everest out on the horizon.
0: I didn't want to quit. And the guide thought we should because the other two members had quit and maybe this was it. And for me, it was difficult. And I remember you have, you know, a spare of everything. And I had three pairs of goggles with me and the lens had popped out. Everything freezes terribly at 50, 60 below. So one pair of goggles, lens popped out. Second pair, lens cracked. And the guide looked at me and says, if you can't figure this out by tomorrow, we're going down. You can't go up without goggles. Well, I remember being at the high camp that night as a team was coming down from the mountain. And for some reason, when I left on that climb, I put a $100 bill in my coat pocket of my down parka. And I remember this group coming down, and I went up to them, and I said, I have a predicament, both my goggles and my spare pair are broken, my third pair is not adequate, does anybody want to sell me their goggles for $100, and one guy said, I'll just give them to you, I've got a spare pair, I said, I insist you take the 100 gave him the $100 bill, the next morning my guide said to me, well, are we going down, Your goggle problem. And I said, I've taken care of it. I've got a pair. And he was like, I'm sure he was like, dang, you know, he really didn't want to have to go up. I remember when we were at high camp before we joined the other climbing group, it was just the two of us in the tent, and the guide was starting to experience hypothermia and was having a, a terrible time. And I remember him saying, we've got to get down. We've got to get down now. And he said, uh, we're going to quickly grab our tents. We're going to get outside, grab our tents. We're not going to pack them up. We're just going to attach them to the back of our packs. And he said, protect the fingers at all cost because, you know, frostbite hands and then you die because you can't clip the, the lines. And I remember us going down this extremely difficult headwall area and <laughs> I had made a little video recording kind of saying goodbye to people before we headed out, thinking, is this it? I don't know. And and when we got down to that camp after hours and hours and hours of just going down in this horrific wind and and cold, and then just regrouping for a day or two, and then trying again a couple days later. But but, yeah, that's you start to question everything that you're doing and, and all the judgments, you know, it's like, is this worth it? But I'm a goal setter, and my goal had been to finish the seven, and I had to get this one done. And that was a difficult mountain for me, very difficult emotionally, I think, more than anything. It's different on every mountain because – Different things are happening in your life and, you know, you have different goals and reasons for being there. And I mean, on Denali, I turned 50 and I kept thinking, you know, that was kind of the thing that spurred me on. It's like, keep going, keep going, prove to yourself that, you know, 50 is not the end of life. And, and, uh, you know, and the Aconcagua one, that was when I was diagnosed with MS. That was kind of the thing that spurred me on in that one. And with, the Vincent Massif, it was like, well, this is it. This is your last proving ground before Everest. And it, they all had a reason to keep you moving forward. And that's when you have to let go of the outcome. Once you get there too, you, you've done all the hard work ahead of time with anything, marathon training, climbing, doesn't matter. You do all the hard work. And when you get there, you just have to let go of the reins and say, I did the best that I could. I'm as prepared as I can be for my physical ability. And now I just have to see what happens. And and in the mountains, they have their own rules. You can't control 60 mile an hour winds and you can't control avalanche or crevasse. You know, you've got to just go and say, now it's up to the elements and it's up to the universe to give me my shot or not.
1: From Vincent to Mount Cozy, as I've now learned to call it. I think at about 7,000 feet. What makes this mountain so tough and where is it?
0: It's in Australia. It's the highest peak in, I believe it's in New South Wales. It's generally not a very difficult mountain. And uh, the day that I went to do it, it's generally just an afternoon stroll. But they were having one of the worst snowstorms. That Australia had had in decades and when, <laughs> when we got there you you ride a chairlift to the starting point we get off the chairlift area and the two people that were also going to go said forget it the weather's terrible we're not going and so the guide and I started out in a blizzard it was an absolute blizzard and he had a, a GPS, couldn't get a signal on the GPS, so he took out his handheld compass and we walked for about an hour. And I remember him saying to me, you know, Laurie, even if we make it to the summit, we won't know it because we can't see anything. And he kept um, falling and sliding into gullies that were forming around all of these rocks. It was treacherous walking because you couldn't see it you know, it was hard to even see you know each other it was so bad and uh he said I remember him yelling if something happens to me you know just just follow the slope downhill and I'm thinking I don't think I want to be stuck up here if he has a heart attack and I have to find my way back down And after about an hour or so, we turned around and went back, and we had to wait three days for the storm to pass. And honestly, out of the seven summits, that's the only one we had to do twice because we couldn't get there (laughs) with the weather the first day. And here you are on, you know, a little peak. But we went back three days later, and everything was ice-covered. But, you know, it just was a – a walk that took several hours in snowshoes. Not a difficult one, but very
1: eventful. <laughs> now let's jump on into Everest here. I've been dying to get to this and wanted to save this for last because, as I say, I know just a little bit more about it, which isn't much. I know K2 is harder and more deadly, but everyone knows Everest. What was the motivation to climb Everest with its storied history of killing people?
0: Well, for me... As a teacher of 20 years, I taught handicapped children and kindergarten and first grade. My message to children was always to believe in yourself and not be afraid to try. And I remember when I thought about the seven summits, I thought, well, I'll climb six of the seven, but I'm never going to do Everest because that's just too hard for me. And, you know, it's beyond what I can do. And. When I thought about it, I thought, well, you've got to let go of the fear and start believing in yourself. Why are you limiting your own possibilities just because you think you're not good enough? And so it really took letting go and saying, give it your best shot and don't be afraid to try. And and that's what Everest was. I I thought, you've done the hard work. You've got to be safe when you go, so you've got to train really hard. And I I hired a trainer to work with me and really get me in the kind of shape that I needed to be in for that mountain. And then I thought just let go of the outcome and give it your best and don't let the fear in. And, and that's because everything on Everest. Is scary, <laughs> really? When you get there, I mean, I I passed Scott Fisher's body, a famous climber, you know, who had died and was frozen in the in the ground, and that would have been enough to make me turn around, you know, had I let the fear in. But for me, I had to really tell myself that in order to remain safe in my world, I had to. Move beyond the fear and rely on my strengths. And one of my strengths was just
1: that determination. And getting back to the subject we talked about earlier about what makes an expert, we got Rob Hall and Scott Fisher, both uh, world renowned experts that had climbing businesses that went up Everest at the same time and both of whom died at the same time, not literally at, simultaneously, but on the same trip. Uh, on the same climb so with roughly 288 climbers having died on Everest did that have anything to do with deterring you?
0: You know that's the reason that I went with the best climbing company that I could find because I needed to rely on the experts judgment as far as when to turn around if to turn around and you know really their call on weather situations Back when Scott Fisher and Rob Hall were doing it, that was just the start of guiding non-professional climbers. And their goal was to get as many people as they could to the top. Climbing companies nowadays, for the most part, that's not their goal. Their goal is safety. And I went with the company that had, and amazing safety record and I knew that they were going to require a lot of me and they would tell me whether it was time to go on or time to turn around and I would have no choice in the matter which is the way it should be and the way I wanted it. So I let go of some of that fear because I knew I was in hands of people that would make The best judgment calls out there. Same
1: inspiration. Um, I know why you wanted to do it on the surface, but underneath it, once again, same inspiration to get up there as the rest or something different here?
0: This one for me was unique and special because shortly before I left, I got a call from the World MS Day headquarters based in London. And they said, we heard this woman with multiple sclerosis is going to climb Everest and would you carry a flag with you in hopes that you would make it to the summit? So I said I would be honored to do that. They mailed the flag but it didn't arrive in time so they had it transported by Yak to Everest Base Camp and when it got there I proudly uh, folded it up, put it in my my down jacket and carried it with me every day as inspiration and motivation to take the steps to the top for all those people who have trouble walking across their living room or up the stairs in their own home. And for me, it was an honor and a privilege to carry their hopes and dreams to the top of the world and hopefully be able to hold that flag up that says we're here and raise awareness for MS, but also to just let them know not to give up on their own dreams, whatever those dreams were. So it was quite an honor to do that. So do you have any fear of climbing the big mountains? That was the thing that I learned early on that I had to let go of the fear. And I I used to have this mantra, don't let fear in, don't let fear in, don't let fear in, because that can be your biggest enemy and if i'm thinking about being afraid i'm not thinking about safety and i'm not thinking about strong and i'm not thinking about positioning myself in the best possible place and so i really let go of fear when i climb i it's fearful thinking about them before i leave like oh my gosh what am i getting myself into but when i'm on the mountain i have to find my strength and my power.
1: What's it like to be on the top of Everest?
0: Bittersweet because it was a blizzard by the time we got to the top and I couldn't see anything. (laughs) And after, you know, 16 years of uh, dreaming about, you know, climbing Everest and being there because it had been 16 years since my very first time on Kilimanjaro, but I got up there and I couldn't see a thing, but it forced me to look inward And I realized how far I'd come because 10 years prior to that, I thought my life was over. I thought my physical life was completely finished when I was diagnosed with MS. And and I realized that in 10 years, I'd not only gotten back physical strength, but most importantly, my mental strength came back. And I no longer define myself. By my physical body and my physical strength, I define myself by the courage and the drive that I found through climbing and how it's changed me inside. And, and my takeaway from all of this has been now give back to other people, help them find their courage because it just takes takes one moment in time to decide that you're no longer going to live in fear, and you've got to find that inner strength and that's that's what I hope to do from here on out because that's what the mountains gave me and Standing on top of everest, I found my courage and I took back my life and and I thought I can move forward from here and i I don't need to climb any other mountains for me. This, I set out to do a goal, I finished it, and I need to pass on those lessons to other people about find your own courage and your own mountain, whatever that is.
1: How long does it take to do the Everest climb from beginning to end?
0: About two months. Yeah, you leave the very end of March, you climb all of April, and most people summit around the third week in May. And then for me, it took almost a week to get off the mountain. Some people helicoptered back off once they got below base camp, but I didn't have the money to do that, so I hiked out. Myself and one other person hiked for those additional three days off the
1: mountain. Tell us how long it takes to get to base camp.
0: To get to base camp itself generally is about a 10-day walk. And it's, it's hard because there are long, long days But you stop in little tea houses at night and you generally get to sleep in a, you know, on a bed or at least a slab and have some hot food. And the camaraderie as you go along, everybody's excited. They're heading, you know, a lot of them are just hikers going only as far as base camp. But uh, it's really a joyous time. Yes, sanitation is terrible, and you're using hand sanitizers and disinfecting everything, and it's very different, and most people get very sick, a lot of you know intestinal things happening and whatnot. But uh, I don't know. it's just you're going to Everest, and that's in your mind. It's like, my God, I'm climbing Everest. So how can you not have a grin from ear to ear?
1: How high is base camp?
0: It's around 17.5. It depends on which spot your
1: team chooses to camp at. So when we get to 17 plus thousand feet, most people wouldn't imagine base camp being like a resort, but compared to everything you've been through from the beginning of uh, the trek up to base camp to base camp, it is like a resort compared to what's next.
0: For our team, it was, you know, you go with those bigger companies and you each have your own tent at base camp and then you have a mess tent and a communication tent. So you could, you know, have a little bit of a place to warm up in the, the mess tent generally was a little bit of warmth in there. And, uh, and they actually set up a little shower stall tent that once a week, whether you needed it or not, you could go in (laughs) And yep. uh, use it, and then yeah. So so it was a little bit of a luxury. And then you know for the next month or so, you'd you'd go up to another camp or maybe two camps, and then you'd come back to base camp. And then you'd go up a few days later to a camp, you know maybe Camp One, Camp Two up to Camp 3, and then you'd stay a couple days and then come back down. And you were getting your body used to that lack of oxygen higher up. So the acclimatization process was a lot of climbing over and over and over that same area.
1: So you don't just go up, acclimatize, come down, and go up to the next highest acclimatize, come down. Yes, you do do that. But on the way up there, you go through seriously hazardous terrain. If I've pronounced this wrong, you just let me know. Cumbra Ice Falls? A kumbu. Where truck size blocks of ice are constantly on the move and uh, and fall off the side of the mountain and crush and kill climbers. Now, the odds are very good you'll get through the falls, but no one takes it for granted. Tell us what it's like emotionally and physically to go through the falls.
0: Well, you have to go through the kumbu ice fall multiple times. We went up and back four times each in the duration of our, our climbing experience over those two months. But initially, you go through the icefall, and it takes hours and hours and hours. And you go very quickly or as quickly as you can over ladders. And, you know, you're all roped up, of course, or clipped into a fixed rope on the ground. But you go as quickly as possible because There's always a chance of avalanche. You try to maintain a distance between climbers so that if an avalanche comes and wipes out one of you, it's not going to kill the whole team. I mean, there are some really bizarre, you know, safety precautions that you just kind of put out of your mind. It's like, okay, yeah, I don't want to get too close because if you know, this person goes down, I need to be able to help and not be dragged through as well. And it it's just a very, very long and tedious going over the ladders. And when we were there, we probably crossed maybe a dozen or so ladders, some of them three and four ladders latched together, you know, just roped together, it didn't seem very safe, but that's just the nature of it. But then you'd go through them up to camp one or camp two, a couple of days later come back through the ice fall again. Then several days later you'd go back, you know, through getting quicker as you go along, getting better at you know, going over those ladders so that ultimately when you make your final push for the summit, you can do it all in about a week's time.
1: What blows my mind about the ladder scene, ladders over crevasses and up walls, but think about the crevasses for a minute. Some of these ladders by themselves aren't long enough to cover the entire crevasse, so they're stitched together. I'm looking at a freezing, cold, hostile, alien environment with people like you dressed up like you're in outer space with no ability to have any great flexibility or finesse, and yet somehow you walk across these aluminum ladders over these deep crevasses To the other side, that is a hairy, hairy scene for me. Every time I just look at that, what's that feel like to be in the middle of one of those ladders looking down or do you not look into the crevasse?
0: (laughs) You try not to look into it, but you're wearing crampons, you know, so you've got points coming out of the front of your boot, points on the back. We generally would take a piece of duct tape and mark the sweet spot on our boot where this gray piece of duct tape should actually line up with the rung of the ladder in order for the points on your crampons not to hit and flip you. So you would look down to, you know, kind of line up that duct tape on the rungs of the ladder so that you could cross more precisely. But Yeah, it was one of those things where you just wanted to go as quickly as you could. And the adrenaline is amazing (laughs) that comes across you. you. You get very focused very fast. And it's like, how quickly can I get to the other side or up to the top? Or sometimes they were facing downhill. You know, I mean, it just was really unnerving, but it was an adrenaline rush to get across and pull yourself off the ladders as quickly as you could.
1: What is the death zone? Where does it begin? How long are you in it? And tell us about it.
0: Well, the death zone is the area referred to above about 25,000 feet. It's called that because you're now in the process of dying instead of living. Your body is in a dying process. It cannot sustain life above 25,000 feet. And that's why most people use oxygen starting at 25 or roughly there, so that you're able to move. And oxygen makes you feel like you're at three or 4,000 feet lower, so that helps a lot you can actually think and, and move a little bit better and it keeps you warmer, (laughs) but, but you are, you are still supported from 25,000 feet on, on Everest, there are ice screws all the way, basically from base camp to the top of the mountain, you're always secured into a running pro, running protection, that's, on the ground that you're clipping in, you're pulling yourself along. You've got an ascender in your hand that's clipped to one wire. You've got another clip, a safety clip behind you. So you're always clipped into the mountain in two spots. And on summit day, generally with our team, everyone had a Sherpa that was walking with them that was assigned To them, so that if anybody did get in trouble, you could go back. Because you get separated from your team pretty easily. I got separated within the first couple of hours in the dark. My headlamp batteries went out, which you change everything right before you go out, but it's frigid temperatures and sometimes technology just fails. So I was changing batteries. And by the time we were done, five minutes later, the rest of the team, you know, was separated from us. And through the course of of you know, ten and a half hours up and six hours back down on Summit night, you're you're all separated quite a bit. But uh so you've got someone by you most of the time. It's hard because we're using oxygen. A lot of the Sherpas don't use as much oxygen and because they don't want to carry the weight. Their bodies, if they have been living at elevation, which the true Sherpa people live higher on the mountain in Nepal, their bodies are able to produce more red blood cells, so they're absolutely more capable, physically capable, And very, very strong because they've done this for a long, long time. They're actually, you know, able to survive on a lot less oxygen. You know, where over the course of the last three days on the mountain, I had four or five oxygen tanks. They didn't use them till summit night. And then their oxygen flow was minimal where most of the clients had a pretty pretty uh, maximum flow of oxygen to keep your bodies warmer and keep you moving faster so that you can get down more quickly.
1: Let me ask you, one of the reasons the death zone is so well known, you couldn't help someone who is clearly in the throes of death there in the death zone because you put your own life in danger trying to help them. And there was a time when you just, you really couldn't. Is that still the case?
0: In a lot of ways, yes. But what happens when you're up that high on a mountain and you see somebody sitting down, you're all clipped to the same line. So generally they're right by you and you would have to go around them. If they were having issues, you, you check, ask how they're doing the guide that's with your group. Who's got the expertise checks and they radio back for help back and forth. And nobody's really, the old saying left for dead, you know, people are constantly checking on each other as they go. Everyone looks like they're in distress, because they generally are. The rule of thumb is that you try not to stop moving, because it's hard to even start moving again. So even if you're stopping to eat or drink something, generally, you're not even sitting down, you're just trying to do it while you're standing. But people do keep a good eye on each other. And especially those members of your own team, the guides are all in radio contact back and forth with each other. But many, many a guide or teammate have abandoned their own climb to help somebody get back down safely. That happened on our trip you know, someone was snow blind, the partner that was climbing with him turned around and went back down. You know, a couple of our guides didn't make it to the top. And it's, everybody really tries to look out for each other. But it's hard to tell sometimes whether a person is in real distress or not, because it's so difficult for everyone that everyone looks A bit haggard, (laughs) to say the least. And with eating, you don't want to eat. You don't really want to drink. Everything is such an effort. You know, you even have to keep your water bottles under your armpits and your food in a inside chest pocket. Everything freezes. And it's just hard to focus on anything but moving your feet, clipping the line in front of you, and moving your foot. Moving your foot, moving your foot, clipping again. And what was interesting too that I learned, they would tell us sometimes, okay, this will be seven steps and then you stop and breathe, or this will be three steps and then you stop and breathe. And so sometimes it was just, you know, one, two, three, and then you just stop and...
1: I can't even <sighs> imagine. I can't even imagine.
0: I think one of the true times that I realized how important the oxygen was, after we summited, came back to high camp at around 26,000 feet, rested for the evening, and that next morning we were getting ready to leave, go back down, and we were going to wear our oxygen tanks until we got down to around 23,000 feet. So during the night, if you run out of oxygen, You'll either you'll hear your own breathing or the person next to you, you all of a sudden hear this gasping sound. (gasps) And, you know, somebody's oxygen is running out. So you help them change their tank very quickly and you get it all set up. So that next morning, guides are ready and the Sherpas have double checked everybody's tanks, got them turned on, and we're supposed to walk from our tent maybe 50 feet over and clip in the, the line to head back down. And I could hardly make it over to clip in the line. And And I remember the, the guide saying to me, are you having trouble? And I said, he's like, I can hardly move. And uh, he said, turn around for a minute. And the tank had accidentally been turned off instead of on when they adjusted it. And he said, oh, I see the problem. He turned it on, and he said, tell me when you feel better. And not three seconds later, I could breathe again. And it's like, oh, that's the difference between no oxygen and oxygen. And I can't even imagine the people that summit with no oxygen.
1: Are you thinking you might try it? (laughs) Never. (laughs) (laughs) Which did you enjoy more, summiting or uh, descent, and which was harder?
0: Oh gosh. Being on top of Everest for those 10 minutes was the most amazing experience as I look back on it. When I was there, I probably was only thinking about getting down, but uh, I remember borrowing a satellite phone, making a phone call to my father, who I had climbed with my very first climb couldn't get the phone to work couldn't get it couldn't get it and finally on the other end of the line i hear my dad's voice and he said where are you and i said on the summit and he said now we've got to get you down and uh he was choking up with tears and and getting down is definitely the most difficult it's it's easier because you're you're it feels easier because you're sort of rolling almost with your steps floating down but it's so dangerous because you're exhausted you know you've already been walking you know through the night for you know a dozen hours and and you just get tired and you get sloppy and so it's very dangerous the the trip factor is
1: is huge. Yeah, yeah, most people think that half the deal is getting up and the rest is coming down. Isn't it more like 35 to 40% of it is getting up? More people die on the way down than going up.
0: They do. They do because you're you're just exhausted. You just are exhausted and a lot can go wrong when your head is not in the right place.
1: Going down is a different set of muscle groups and it challenges you differently. Mm-hmm. It's not the same thing at all and I I actually have to train more. For any of the climbing I do, uh, the downhill is is a whole different training event for me.
0: Yeah, it is, and I remember even just training on a treadmill, walking backwards on the treadmill, or walking sideways on the treadmill. And uh, when I trained, you know, on the ski hills here, the, the downhill was so important because it's it's a whole different set of skills, like you said, and and you need to remember specific ways to walk so that you're not going to slip and slide. And yeah, it's
1: difficult. Sum up the Everest experience for me. What's the biggest, most exciting takeaway from Everest for you?
0: Believing that you can do more than you ever thought humanly possible. For me, I was never a tomboy, still not. You know, I was kind of a girly girl right from the get go. And It amazes me what the human spirit can do when you're pushed to your limits and also when you're just trying to redefine yourself like I was when I got diagnosed with MS. And the human spirit is alive and well, and my gosh, it just amazes me what normal people can achieve if they
1: set their minds to it. Tell us real quick about what's happening with this Bugaboo thing. What is Bugaboo and what's that all about?
0: The Bugaboo Mountains are a gorgeous remote mountain range in British Columbia in Canada. And it's generally an area that is accessible only by helicopter, So it's used in the winter as a winter ski destination. But it's very remote, like I said, so there are no roads to get there. There are no hiking trails. There are no paths. But last year, and this summer as well, I brought a group of people with varying abilities. We had other people with MS. We had people with Parkinson's disease. We had cancer survivors. We had doctors, lawyers, people with no physical disabilities, people that just wanted to get out and have some fun. And we participated in a mini-escape helicopter hiking adventure. So small groups would set out from this beautiful lodge in the Bugaboo Range every morning, and the helicopter would whisk you to a mountaintop or on top of a a glacier or in a valley or a mountain stream or a lake, different places every day and would drop you in a guide and uh, maybe six or seven other people and you'd hike for a few hours and then the guide would say, okay, anybody want to go up and walk that ridge top over there across the valley and they'd radio the helicopter would silently just show up and you'd all huddle down and it would pick up your group and take you to a new spot for a few hours and you'd do this three or four times during the day and then at the end of the day the helicopter picked you back up took you to the lodge you could use the climbing wall hot tub massage gourmet meals, happy hour. It was just an amazing experience. So we had 45 last year and uh, I'm going to bring another group there this year. The money goes to the climbing company, um, Canadian Mountain Holidays. There are expert organizers and I'm just kind of the cheerleader bringing together people that normally wouldn't participate in something like this. So we've got lots of space available still. It's July 9th through the 14th, and you can email me, and I'd love to send you the info because it's a great,
1: great trip. What is that address right now?
0: The best way to reach me is my email address, my first name, Lori, L-O-R-I, at etadventure.com. So it stands for Empowerment Through Adventure.
1: This sounds like something I'd like to do. I'm hearing choppers. I'm hearing massage. I'm hearing lodges. I'm hearing massages.
0: Oh, it's so much fun. We had the best time. And after the end of the trip, it was kind of like leaving summer camp. (laughs) You know, we were all hugging and in tears. And because you learn so much about other people when you're just walking for hours. And there are some incredible areas called the via ferratas if you want to do some climbing there are fixed lines going up some really steep wonderful uh, slopes and ridges and you can even try some mountain climbing and all the gears provided backpacks are provided hiking boots you don't have to do any training I mean my dad who's 85 went along and loved it you know he did more gentle hikes There were people with some definite physical disabilities that had a great job. Some people wanted to do very long, extensive glacier walks. They could do that. There was something for everybody, and it was so much fun.
1: So there are obvious differences between this sort of experience that you're having and giving to people versus um, summiting the seven summits. What, what What is the big difference for you?
0: Well, I think with this trip to the Bogaboos. It's just about getting people to step outside of their comfort zone. That's what I did on the mountain and on all the mountains that I've climbed. I stepped outside of my comfort zone, and I learned a lot about myself and a lot about my courage. And, you know, on this trip to the Bogaboos, some people were nervous about, you know, being in a helicopter. Other people weren't hikers, and they thought, oh, I can't. I can't be on a mountaintop. When, when could I ever do that? And, and people who are normally hikers could step outside of their comfort range and try a little bit of, of climbing. So it's, it's just about stepping outside the box and giving yourself permission to try and not being there to have to prove anything to anyone. And I, I think that's what I loved about the Bugaboo trip and about all the climbs that I've been on. I, the only person I needed to prove anything to was myself. And what I taught myself was that you just get out there and try. You don't have to be the best to have. An incredible experience and an incredible time.
1: Now you're you're a very int- inspirational uh, international speaker and writer, and you're no slouch at this stuff either. You've been included in Reader's Digest, Women's Adventure, Guidepost, USA Today, TEDx, and newspapers and magazines all over the world, and you've been published in dozens of languages. Tell us about your writing and tell us about your speaking.
0: After I climbed Everest, I started getting phone calls to speak to different groups and organizations in the United States. And then I started getting calls to speak internationally at different events, sometimes through uh, medical organizations, pharmaceutical companies, sometimes MS groups. Sometimes it was just adventure groups. Other times it was um, companies that wanted – to learn about the process of stepping outside the box, you know, and doing things above and beyond what you would normally do. So it evolved on its own, and it became something that I, I really enjoyed, sharing the story of believing in yourself. And and that's what the story is. Yeah, the setting is great. You know, it's climbing Everest. I mean, it, that's exciting in a lot of people's worlds. But the story is how everyday people can accomplish things that they never thought possible by believing in themselves. So that's what the speaking end of it really has evolved to, about sharing that message that we all have it in us to do more than we thought possible. And then I started bringing people along on adventures. I took a group of people with MS and Parkinson's, to climb Kilimanjaro, 28 of us back in in 2011, and uh, almost everyone made it to the summit. And when we got back down, we wrote a book called More Than a Mountain, and we donated all the proceeds to the MS and Parkinson's organizations. And so, you know, different kinds of writing have come out of different experiences that I've done. but. I have always journaled, so a lot of my writings are journal entries from different adventures that I've been on. So on my website, lauryschneider.net, I had access to those books and, and how people can contact me. And, and I love just hearing other people's stories and, and sharing them because my story is not unique. It, it absolutely is not. It, people do, so many things that they didn't think were possible in their own lives also. And I, I love to share those with other people because it's all just about believing in ourselves. And, and once we find that part of us inside ourselves that says, I'm, I'm worthy of trying and nobody has to believe in me but myself, then Lives change.
1: Well, your message is definitely getting out there and I know people are gonna love this. You were also part of a global health panel in Geneva, Switzerland at the World Health Organization.
0: Yes, and that was well, it was very interesting because it was a, a global meeting on on self help and people taking care of their own health and being proactive. And there was this this worldwide meeting and I got an invitation for empowerment to adventure, and when they called me, I said, "Do you realize that I'm a one-person company and I'm, I'm empowerment through adventure?" And they said, "Yes, that's why we want you here because you relate to people on a one-to-one, where some of these huge organizations around the world, you know, that it's not the the personal feel." That we get from your company. So when I showed up at the meeting in Geneva, you walk into this huge arena and there are signs everywhere in the room, you know, different countries, there are signs and you look for the sign where you're supposed to sit. And when I walked in, they said, uh, what's your name? And I told them and and I'm looking around where in this maze of, you know, signs might it say USA, and she said, oh, no, you're on the panel. You sit on the floor in the front, (laughs) uh, not on the floor, but in a chair on the floor up in front. So it was a big, big honor for me to be a part of some decision-making about just making health more accessible to people around the world.
1: So how can people reach you? I'm sure it's the same address, but let's just make sure we've got it here. How can they reach out to you if they want to hear more from you?
0: I love getting emails from people and the easiest way is to contact me via email or through the website it has my email on it as well. But if you'll post those, it's it's my website lauryschneider.net, lorischneide L-O-R-I-S-C-H-N-E-I-D-E-R dot net, or just through the email laurie at etadventure.com I also do an Empowerment Through Adventure Facebook page where I put information about the Bugaboo trip and about other things that are happening. So, you know, but the the takeaway message on all of this, Craig, is that we all have unique abilities and don't let your disability or your label define you because everybody has something. It can be chronic back pain. It can be high blood pressure. It can be issues with weight. It can be cholesterol issues. It can be financial or relationship things. Everybody has a disability of some sort at one point in their lives or another or an injury. And it's about moving beyond what is happening in our life and finding the strength and courage to keep going forward. And whether you're an athlete or a person who doesn't particularly get out and do physical things. It doesn't matter. It's, it's moving beyond what you thought possible in your life and finding goals that are important to you. Let me
1: ask you one parting question here. Are you ready? I'm ready. Seven Summits, MS, whatever it is that you've been through, whatever Story was relayed back to you by a given experience. Is there any one thing that stands out today that you'd like to share that's a what I learned from that moment?
0: What I feel my biggest lesson in life was was taking what I thought was the worst thing that could ever happen to me and turn it into the best thing that ever happened to me so for me. What I thought was the worst thing that ever happened in my life was being diagnosed with MS because I thought I would lose my mobility. I thought I would lose my dignity. I thought I would lose every ounce of respect for myself and hope for my future. I I thought that was all gone when I heard those two little letters, MS, because I defined myself differently. And what I have found is that that challenge gave me more satisfaction and more determination and more power in my life than I ever thought possible. It gave me permission to do things that I would have never tried before, It gave me permission to fail and say that failure is only in my mind. The strength to move beyond having things not go perfectly doesn't mean you failed. And it took a lot of strength and courage to keep getting up and moving forward. And I think had I not been diagnosed with MS and I had not thought that my life was over. It would not have started in the magnificent way that it has started for me now. And I can't imagine being in a more peaceful, happy place.
1: I really want to thank you for taking all of this time to spend with me today to tell your story, to share it with us, and to make yourself available to anyone who might be interested in talking further with you.
0: Well, thank you so much and I just am appreciative of the opportunity to share my story because it's, it's one in a million and there are lots of people that have stories that just show their own strength and moving beyond obstacles and I'm happy to talk to anybody that contacts me because we're all in this life together.